0: Man, so many pictures to go through. Where do I even start? I guess this is as good a place as any. It's time for another episode of Moto Albums. Welcome to a Verb podcast. This is another episode of Moto Albums. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With me on the line, we've got none other than the motocross legend himself, Jeff Emmett. (laughs) Jeff, how's it going?
1: Uh it's good. It's good to be on with you here and uh you know like I said we've met uh, a couple times before but now to uh take a look at some motocross history and take that walk down memory lane should be a good time and hopefully the viewers uh and the listeners have a good time with it.
0: Absolutely, man. First of all, it is an absolute pleasure. You are motocross royalty. <laughs> uh, the the era in which your career existed um, you might be one of the last guys that I can think of who actually might have competed at one point, in probably your youngest years, on air-cooled bikes.
1: Well, I mean,
0: like, like, w- like when you were on fifty-sixties, were they air-cooled or were they still already? Yeah, like- so the
1: eighty-eighty, uh, nineteen eighty might have been the last YZs that were air-cooled, but eighty-one. 82, maybe the 81 YZ60. It it wasn't even 65 then. It was a 60 and then just before that was a 50 even. So yeah, oh yeah, I rode twin shocks, air cooled, drum brakes, all that. Right Uh, on. I went through, I went through a, a really great, uh, evolution development period of dirt bikes. Really, really pretty. Pretty fun, you know, yeah. I didn't really get to ride the quote works bikes, like, the some of the, uh, you know, the works Hondas in the eighties kind of come to mind as being the, the most handcrafted type of thing. I mean, I rode some stuff with Yamaha when we were in uh, Japan. We rode some of the all Japan nationals or a couple of supercrosses where, uh, Bradshaw Dubak and myself got to ride the, the, the Yamaha 250. OW works bike like leaf spring um, fuel injection back in the days that fuel injection worked like shit back then <laughs> um, leaf spring stuff, like really weird stuff. But on the production bikes going from twin shocks, mono shock, all of the early eighties when the manufacturers were trying to figure out linkages and, and, and all those types of things uh, on a two stroke engine, when there was no exhaust valve power valve. So I went through that whole thing. Uh, Yamaha's had these really cool, uh, extension. Uh, it was, they called it like a boost bottle was sort of the, the slang for it. But from the carburetor on the, on the rubber air boot that went from the carburetor to the reed block, the reed cage, um, you would have, um, a, a hose coming off of that. With like a, a, a you know a certain shape or certain size volume, you know like an empty canister, which which when the engine shut up when you shut off the throttle, and the reed pedals would close, that extra volume of fuel and air that was you know would would go up into that bottle, and then the concept was that when you got back on the throttle. The reed cage opens and it, and it starts to vacuum, um, all the air and fuel velocity from the carburetor. Then there was this extra bit that was stored in that That's bottle crazy. that then went through it. Oh, yeah. Weird stuff like that. So, um, you know, and then development of all kinds of parts, being a factory racer and stuff, you, you go through a lot of the development. Now, what I did miss was really I missed the four strokes and I just, just missed it um and really any real fuel injection like mapping and stuff like what you would call it now with with like efi and so i've actually this summer was the first time that i'd ever done any testing with mapping which is essentially like jetting in a two-stroke world um and i did that with jamie ellis from uh, twisted development when we're working on my on my 300 two strokes so yeah it's been fun but you get to be my age brad you're gonna see a lot of shit right <laughs> no like, kidding yeah holy oh, yeah.
0: fuck man like we we i i told you this before we hit record on this we could do we could do one specifically just on the changes of the bikes that you saw from year to year to year like right side up suspension uh the different cartridge forks and stuff like that but right now we're gonna go through some photos uh we're gonna go m- down memory lane uh if at some point uh, you get tired of talking to me or, uh, it's, it's time for dinner. Just like log off the call and I'll, I'll take that as a hint that, uh, yeah. you're, you're done. And, connection uh, but, is lost. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're breaking up, Brad, or maybe we're breaking up. Like, uh, but yeah, no, we'll, we'll go through some stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're, we'll break it up here. This will be fun. And, uh, I'm, I'm excited to chat with you about some stuff, man, because I'm a total moto nerd and I just, I just, I go nuts over this. So. The man, the myth, the legend that is Jeff Emig. And honestly, with more cross nations in the very, in the not so distant future, I'm going to be in France in a week's time, which just blows my mind because I haven't been off, uh, North America before. Um, you are a three time champion of this race. Uh, first time going was 1992. Uh, I, I assume, I guess you would have went twice on a Yamaha and then, uh, once on the Kawasaki and pictured here, uh, racing the 500 um not a not a, a class that you actually wrote a lot of um but yeah take us first of all what's going on in this fi- this picture and let's talk some mx mxdm yeah
1: so this would have been 1996 uh, lamston was on the 125 uh 125 champion uh mcgrath was on the 250 he would have been a supercross champion that year um i was on the 500 uh and and we had just recently uh um, uh, McGrath and I just battled it out for the, for the 250 Motocross Championship. Um, and so this is the first time that I, that I actually got to ride the 500 because the year before, uh, let's see, I would have been Yamaha and Ryan Hughes rode this bike. Um, we just talked about this bike uh, last week at the LA Coliseum. Uh, Kawasaki had a big uh, champions and legends uh, celebration and this 500 gets brought up. Uh, quite a bit um but this was the last time that this bike was raced and i say this bike because really this 500 hadn't changed a lot from around 1992 so the basic spec uh, was something that jeff ward would have ridden and then mike LaRocco and mike kadrowski would have would have raced certain bikes but this bike specifically was ridden a few times and saved for the next motocross of nation. So really? I believe this is. I I believe that this is the same actual race bike that Ryan Hughes rode the year before in Slovakia. That's interesting. And maybe the year before, I think, uh, God, who rode in '93? LaRocco? Kajowski or rocco rode the five One of the two. Yeah. So I, I I'm thinking this bike was. You know, three or four years old, and what they would do is, if there was a new, like physical, like shock spec or something new, they would throw it on there. If there was a new spec for forks, they would throw it on there. And there was a practice bike slash test bike, and then there was the race bike. And so, but this was it. This was the end of the era for the 500 because the next year would have been uh, Lamson, Dowd, myself, and I rode. I rode a 252 stroke. That's when they right. they turned the 500 class into, you know, maybe they called it MX3 or open or something at the time.
0: Yeah. Where there still were at, like the open class, you saw like a lot of big displacement four strokes at the time, uh, some yeah. of the vertimates that you'd see even, uh, some of the more exotic bikes. But yeah, it, it got to the point where, uh, you guys all like the two premier uh, level guys, you'd be better served just riding a 252 stroke. Um, cause actually it was at this event where if I'm not mistaken, Steve Lampson goes out and, and wins the 125 versus 500 race uh, on a 125. Is that not correct?
1: Yeah, no, we need to to sort of put that into perspective. Um, That day, like, I I felt that I had all of the 500 guys covered. And there really was this brewing battle between AMA and FIM, like there always was. And who's the best 125 rider in the world? Is it Lanson or is it Tortelli? And knowing sort sort of we we really were teed up to have a a great event. And I remember talking to Lamson and going, Hey, look, if you and Tortelli are going at it, like I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna battle for the win. Like it doesn't like there wasn't I wasn't I had just literally gone through the toughest battle of my entire career the week before or whatever it was at Steel yes. city with with jeremy and so now at this point it was like hey you know whatever and i was a, i was if i remember correctly I, I probably qualified first on this bike and r- my memory is that i didn't really have a lot of competition on it for whatever reason and i don't want to disrespect any of my competitors or whatever but that's just how i remember it I could be right. completely wrong i need to need to throw out the caveat with something like this that that you know, this has been a number of years and, and I could be completely, you know, I don't know, but that's how I remember it at this point. So that's what we're going to go with. Um, and, and sure as shit, like I'm out front, uh, having a, a, a fairly easy race. If I remember correctly, there might've been a a pretty decent first turn pileup or something mm-hmm. that that it sort was- of made, made life even easier. And I was just kind of cruising out front And then here comes Lamson and Tortelli and I could see them on the track and I was like, oh shit, these guys are throwing down. Like it's like they're going after it. And and it's crazy because there are times that I can remember, and this is a moto that was just like that. You're kind of riding and racing subconsciously, while like I'm doing my own race, but and I'm doing that subconsciously. My mind, my conscious mind is watching what's happening with with Lampson and Tortelli, like watching them around the track. And then they catch me and then it's like both go by and I'm like, OK, I want to keep up with them so I can watch the finish, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're almost with, a spectator in the yeah, race.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a, yeah, I'm an active spectator. So but it was great. Um, I mean, I had this is probably a clip from that. Uh, shot that that a lot of people talk about it seems to be infamous where I'm jumping over a guy on the downhill quad and people ask me about that all the time like right and they seem it's like they think that I'm the only guy that jumped this thing like it was some <laughs> crazy jump that I could only do on the 500 trust me I wasn't the only guy jumping it and it was scary as shit on this bike because you could over jump it or you could under jump it really easily so, I was talking about that I would lug the engine. I would, I would like upshift to where I didn't have a lot of snap in the throttle. Right. And I would just kind of lug the bike off it. So, I get this great photo. Meanwhile, you, you know, McGrath and Lampson are like jumping this downhill quad, like just whipping it. You know, McGrath doing knack knacks. Lampson's like whipping it so hard that, and, and I'm just going off of it like, like full dead sailor. And I end up with this great photo. So, that's, yeah. But it yeah. was a great day. We really cleaned up. Um, Eric Johnson at Racer X once wrote about <clears throat> how he compared the uh, uh, 84 um, Team USA win at Majora Park to this and the number of champions in the race and all this sort of stuff. Um, I just don't remember it being that difficult. I, I mean, maybe it was, but just in my mind, it was kind of a cruise control day.
0: Yeah, no, you guys took care of business, and I, th- I think the the lore of this photo and this is why I picked this photo to begin this is that, um, like you as well as I know now in today's media, like the photos from this weekend's the next weekend's motocross to nations, like <laughs> they are so disposable in the fact that there's going to be millions of them, they're going to circulate around the internet for about a week, and then it'll be on to pictures of of Chase Sexton on a KTM and this that and everything. whereas photos like this. Like this was, I think this was, it was was an MXA uh photo and, or possibly a, uh, um, uh, in cycle news. And these photos were, there was maybe one of like 50 photos from that particular weekend. And it just immediately lives in infamy. Like people would pour over these, like a monthly publication. Like you'd have it in your bathroom and you'd flip through it a 50,000 times. Um, and looking at stuff like this and yeah, like I've ridden a KX 500 jumping one is like jumping, uh, like. Are like a, a dump truck.
1: Those things don't, they don't, oh, yeah, Volkswagen, yeah. Yeah,
0: they're, they fly like, uh, like a cinder block. And, uh, yeah, you, like that's probably what makes this thing more impressive. Um, but one of the things I love about more across this nation is something you still see to this day. It's maybe the only race all year where you get to see more of it is the custom paint jobs. And you always had some of the best custom painted helmets in throughout the nineties. In fact, I have one of the helmets here. Uh, maybe I'll go run and get it in a minute that uh, one of my helmets uh, that I had painted is sort of inspired by uh, some of the looks that you had. So th- this was a good helmet as well.
1: Yeah. That's something that we lived through that, that era. Now everybody has uh helmet uh, sponsors where they want that graphic to sell that helmet or more than likely on the pro level, they, they have, um, you know, energy drink sponsor that they've taken over that space and, It certainly made the helmet uh, space a hell of a lot more valuable to the athlete than what it was before. But in these eras, uh, every one of my motocross of nations helmets, whether it was a showy or whether it was a fox, um, was done by uh, Troy Lee Designs, and 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 Troy always had just a great way of of you know capturing that. And my my first helmets were really that blue and white uh, victory design and even though you can't see it in this helmet it just kept getting crazier and crazier the v was still in there but he just changed it up um so much so i i believe i still have all of these i don't know i've got a storage unit just full of all kinds of memorabilia that uh, i need to bust out and i need to get it out there in the world because it doesn't do any good sitting around where it is right now but uh i, I believe that i still have this helmet
0: yeah, and, and always a showy guy, uh, right up until you're wearing, uh, the fox lids at the very end. Um, what was the, the connection there? Like you just like, you ran them as an amateur or what was the deal?
1: No, I didn't actually. I actually rode, uh, I was with, uh, uh, maybe Bell and then, uh, BFA and for a couple years in the late eighties. Um, and I really wasn't happy with that at the time. I actually rode my very first supercross was Anaheim. 1989 Uh, I was still an amateur so I kind of did this this sort of pro-am thing Um, um, I rode the my very first supercross wearing Jeremy Albrecht's Joey that was a truly designed painted Joey I I wasn't even in my own helmet I asked him if I could borrow it because I didn't want to wear my BF (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious so, and then after that we got a deal done and you know eventually the replica with the bull and all that sort of stuff so yeah it was uh it was a fun time and it added a lot of character um you you kind of express some of your personality through through your helmet some of the messaging and things like that you know so yeah it was great
0: that's awesome. What, what other memories do you, uh, do you have from 92 and 93 and the other years that you went to more across Cause there were, there was a lot of other, there was other years where, uh, you were called to be on that team on on a lot of years, but, uh, you did get three six,
1: six straight years. Yeah. yeah. I was really bummed that really, really bummed that in 98, uh, I, I had had sort of a hot and cold year, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, was injured and didn't get selected and, and, and breaking my thumb and, and just really disappointed that that streak ended and it was like oh yeah i'll be back again and as it turns out um 97 would would be my last one across the nation so across the nation's a very emotional race um the high the, the highest highs of winning for the first time in 1992 certainly was just uh one of the greatest achievements of my career at that time where um I rode a 125 Michael Rocco and the 250 Billy Lyles, who was riding GPs rode the 500. Uh, Roy Jansen was a team manager. So for the first time in a while Roger Decoster wasn't team manager and we were we were all kind of the B team and we went halfway across the world to Western Australia to win and manage them up. So and the first time that you hoist the, the Chamberlain trophy especially as a 21 year old yeah uh, you're it Yeah, it was just, it was just a highlight of my career and, and really, um, is, is 92 is when I really started to, um, be known on the world stage and things like that. So yeah, it was great. And the lowest of lows when we lost in 94, uh, in Roggenberg, Switzerland, I literally cried after the race. I I just felt like I, I let everybody down. I should have won. I should have been the first 125, both motos. And Paul Malin out of England had the day of days and he rode amazing. He passed me both motos and I reeled him in a little bit at the end of each moto, but he just, he rode, um, you know, the track was something that an Englishman like himself, uh, was just very accustomed to. And I just, I was too cautious in the beginning of the races and he wasn't. And, um, Mike and Mike, um, struggled with, with you know being inside the top two or so and that just really hurt our chances and so but i i i took it very personal because i felt like i was the fastest 125 rider in the world even though i didn't win the 125 championship here um i felt like that i was the best guy and i i felt like i let myself down and by doing that i let down our country and our team and and i just i was like oh shit, man after the race the awards podium and all that stuff and then i kind of went off on the side of the track overlooking this beautiful valley in switzerland and and it just hit me like oh shit i'm on the first team that didn't win it once we started winning uh Mm. so I, i i just took it really personal and and um vowed that the next year we would get it back but we didn't get it back the next year either.
0: Yeah honestly it's uh it, it's it's no small feat to win this ch- this championship uh this is at bit, at this time was maybe the most popular and most coveted this this uh race has ever been throughout the 90s the, the level of of uh, exposure and the the attention and and just like sort of the, the clashing of two worlds that it was like you had the the MXGP's that was like in still many people's eyes the preeminent championship then you had uh like basically the other side of that coin where people say that the, the, the best racers in the world go to the U S and the best racers in the world are from the U S. Um, and like it was a, it was a real clash of clans year after year after year. Uh, and you being part of that so many times, uh, had to have been a huge feather in your cap. And honestly, like I, I got to imagine that this race and the success that you had at this race sort of fed, um, your career in throughout the nineties of just being able to have that confidence that so I'm like, I'm one of the baddest guys on a dirt bike period let alone just from the u.s
1: well there definitely was an ama versus i uh, versus fim element to it Mm -hmm. and it because we had won so much uh, that 13 straight that by the time we got to 92 93 you know in there into 94 it was us against the world and teams would be like hey we're out of it so we don't give a shit. We are going after the American riders because they just, it, even if it's like, Hey, even if you're riding for Italy, let's say, you ain't going to win it, but damn sure. Make sure that America doesn't win it again. And like you talk to guys like Stant and whatnot about how many years they kind of snuck by and lucked out or needed something to happen just right to, to win it. And, and it, and that happened. Um, you know, our time finally came in ninety four. But it was it was nice to to win again in ninety six and I'm really glad that I got a chance to ride this KX five hundred at least once.
0: No kidding. Absolutely. Uh, like uh, to this day, Mike LaRocco is still the reigning five hundred national champion, even though he won- the last time he would have won it is ninety five, I wanna say. They didn't run the five hundred national Yeah, ninety four, uh, stopped running the five hundred nationals after that year uh let's spin the clocks a little bit further back uh i pulled some pictures from uh the amateur days there's the kx60 i think is that a 60 or is that an 80
1: no those are uh 80s the, those are 80s the left and left in the center yeah then and, a
0: 125 and, uh, yeah
1: 125 or 250 i can't tell but it was my last year at uh, loretta's yeah
0: so first of yep. all I love the, the, the venting that you've, you've done some customization work with the, 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 the Loretta's bib. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Cutting the holes out of there. You're rocking like both actually, uh, you and, uh, uh, the gentleman sitting next to you running the hockey hair. Like that's, that's the, the shaggy looks that, uh, hockey players are known for, uh, the open faced helmet. You ran that a lot during, uh, your, uh, amateur days. And, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, that's 747 as, uh, as a three-digit number on the uh on the far right there
1: yeah so that picture on the far left oh that's gotta be like 85 maybe um yeah. probably 85 and and uh um i ran the the bell mag 3 there for a long time i i i liked wearing the open face helmet um I wore like a a Scott Venturi during those days. And I mean, even, even before that, I I rode uh, before the mag came out, I used to wear an open face helmet. I wear a Jofa or the JT mouth guard thing. And, and, uh, I, I, I always, uh, I didn't like how having the full face on, it was hard to see out of it. And really Jeff Ward and I were the, were some of the last to wear any sort, you know, any sort of open face helmet. Um, and uh yeah, originally the the a,
0: viewport of a a full-faced helmet was was not optimal like it was pretty tight right like the, it's not as open as yeah. it is now so like even in the, yeah. the showy on the one helmet there you can see that it's pretty tight and the the chin the nose piece actually comes up quite top quite high
1: yeah it did and and um you know but there were multiple times where smashed my face had you know knocked a tooth out in 1978 wearing a open face helmet i got a gnarly cut here under my mustache gnarly cut i had to go to the hospital to get stitches i cut my chin up uh once or twice wearing an open face where i had to had to get some stitches but um yeah it's i i certainly wouldn't want to do that these days the helmets are too good and and knowing what i know about it, <laughs> it's just but that was that was that was the era you know, yeah you know. So you're always
0: a, a Team Green Kawasaki kid for the, as far as I can remember, I don't know exactly what year you'd started on Team Green, but um, all of the photos that I've ever seen of you in amateurs, you're on a green bike. Um, like, and honestly, to this day, no, like, I, I know you're on a Husky today, uh, but Jeff, you're a Cowie guy to me. <laughs> um Like, this, this yeah. was synonymous, uh, like the uh, the 47 on a green Kawasaki and uh, lots of smiling, lots of winning as well.
1: Yeah. So, first off, we all kind of have that. Every every rider, uh, champion, even my my heroes that rode rode multiple brands. You still have that brand that you really want to associate your heroes with. It's like Rick Johnson. Who do you associate him with?
0: Honda.
1: Yeah, he rode Yamaha also. Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah, he right, he's but, and, and so it did really well that that in Yamaha
1: too. Yeah, yeah, yeah and so. You know, I, I rode, um uh, my first real sponsorship came from Yamaha's amateur program in 1980, right. from sixties to eighties. And then 84, I started with team green, went all the way, uh, to 89. And then first year as a pro, I was with factory Kawasaki. And then I went back to Yamaha and then back to Kawasaki. And, and then, uh, even my race teams, I went to Yamaha and then back to Kawasaki. So, It was really just Yamaha and Kawasaki for I mean for the most part. I mean I rode Suzuki's and MR fifty Honda and italijet and stuff like that when I was a kid, you know, a few a few different bikes. But from the point of where I where I had some sort of sponsorship support, it was always Yamaha and Kawasaki and I and I I feel like I always left on good terms. And the companies once the pendulum sort of swung back the other direction. Um, it, there was an opportunity there with them. And then, you know, I eventually went to Husky in, um, 2016, and I had a great relationship with, uh, with the entire, um, you know, Husky crew and, uh, the KTM group. Uh, I ended my relationship with them in 2000, 2000, oh, I'm sorry, 20, uh, 2020, 21. And so currently not um, contracted by any, any manufacturer. And the bike that I ride is not a Husky, even though it's white and black.
0: Fair enough. Um, <laughs> well, like, so like, dude, like I, I think you had great style, honestly. Like you always had cool gear, uh, running the, the over the, over the, the jersey chest protector sticker placement was always prime. Uh, answer gear for the most part, uh, aside from a couple of the years where you wore different stuff. Uh, How did sponsorships work uh, back in the day? Like, were you sending out resumes from a super young age? or And and how were these gears being brokered?
1: In the Team Green days, they had uh, uh, a team deal with Scott goggles, bell helmets, answer gear, and boots. And I remember this picture in the center. I remember when all of this gear showed up, and they sent, like, gear for the entire year. And it was like this amazing, like a huge box full of gear, Christmas. which, which, yeah. Oh, the greatest thing ever. Uh, I mean, just, just the greatest thing ever. And those little answer triangle stickers during that era, I would put those things everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was super fun. And gear during that time period was going through a lot of transition, a lot of color changes and stuff, you know, where 10 years before that hell guys might've still been wearing leather leathers. Now be, they became pants instead of leathers and, and what it would have been in the seventies, early seventies yeah, probably. It,
0: it's what like a lot of people don't know or maybe they, they don't remember. Uh, it was not uncommon throughout the seventies that you basically wore like racing leathers that you would have probably commissioned to like a local leather shop or, or there's different manufacturers that had them. And then the jersey was. Uh, was, was the, the the manufacturer you wore like it was Kawasaki Suzuki, whichever like it was actually the only brand that really came out that uh, aside, aside from Thorsten hallman was was fox and like the story goes from them they only really made the gear to uh to like let everyone know what shocks they were running because like a little sticker on the side of a shock doesn't uh, doesn't advertise as well as uh, the guys running the gear and all of a sudden people just started asking for the gear more than they're asking for the socks and a company's board. Uh, one yeah, for, for yeah. A really long and, of and then by
1: yeah, and then by the late 70s is when JT racing right. started going. And I mean, there's that great photo from probably 81 or so 82, 83, where, where I mean, almost everybody who was anybody was in a line from the Kawasaki guys, the Yamaha guys, Honda, uh, Suzuki, they were all wearing JT. Um, and then and then it was uh, probably around eighty three or so is when Fox Racing brought um they had uh uh Mark Barnett, um uh Rick Johnson, uh Pete Fox started designing gear in like eighty five or eighty six while they were still in high school and and uh and then Fox really started to to put a dent into what they were doing. Axo, um and all the guys, Kenny and all the guys there just started doing great work. And, and now it's like, I mean, look, we have like 50 brands now, you know, so.
0: Yeah. And uh, one of the things that like, is sort of interesting and you were part of that swing throughout the, the nineties, especially with shift is that back in the day, um, because of like <clears throat> traditional media and, and so much print, um, there, there was a lot of investment into like really eye catching, like iconic, Ads, like gear ads, whether it was, uh, like you had the, the GI look with the black and the, and the, the the camel pants, uh, from 1997. Uh, whereas now, um, the, the approach is basically to come out with like a limited edition on a weekend. Uh, they do that, like Fox does that four or five times a year. And that's what drives people to the website. Maybe, maybe
1: more, maybe more. Yeah.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. They honestly, they probably do it almost monthly um and that's what gets you to the website and maybe that stuff sold out or maybe it's not available but at least you've come to the website and you're gonna buy something right like that's the whole idea behind it so uh it's kind of interesting to see it because like i think of like say like uh rick johnson with like the thinker post back in the day like that was cute or uh doug henry's like the the scar photo like that stuff that lives in infamy you just don't have that stuff anymore but
1: yeah and that really was the intuition and the bravery that, um, that I do believe that Pete Fox, you know, drove through the Fox brand. I'm sure that he drove his older brother, Greg, nuts. and his dad, Jeff, and whoever else was running the company. He probably drove them nuts with these ideas where, where, um, you, you know, when you're trying to build this company and, if a a designer has this vision and especially Pete, he's the, he's the biggest fan advocate of motocross still. It's like, he watches every second of every lap of every race comments on it all the time on his social media. Um, But he just had this vision and this style um, that was really bold and fearless. And like Rick Johnson and the thinker ad and things like that were just great. Um, He was not a part of the, the Rick Johnson Oakley ad with the, um, the yeah. sort of zebra sort of paint, which was just, which was great because. Another great one, yeah. Um, but Rick Johnson was the right personality for that. And it's, it's like you saw, I mean, the good example is, is with Shift in the mid to late 90s, well, late 90s, I guess it was, things were pretty crazy uh, in general. You know, we do the hot tub ad and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, private jets and all kinds of craziness. And then some years later, they tried to duplicate that with Brock Hepler as a shift rider, like in a limousine with a bunch of big boob women. And it's like,
0: and, and yeah, Brock Hepler's like he wouldn't know what to do with any of them.
1: He's not, the, he wasn't the right subject for that. Uh, right. if I, I wasn't on board with that. I was with shift at the time as a consultant and I'm just like, that's not, it has to be authentic to the person. And so, so many of these ads, uh, um, you really, you can't, you, you know, you just can't take one idea and put it on any one of your athletes. It really has to line up. And I think that that's where the magic of some of that great marketing builds. The athlete's image, the brand's image and creates something that we are attracted to. And it's like that brand's cool. That's what I want to be about. And then also it really, the authenticity comes when that's the lifestyle too. And sure. if you know, if you knew Rick Johnson, know him like, like he still is a b- b- bad boy, right? The original bad boy to him. I mean, he's like the funniest dude you'll ever get on a podcast. He's just. You know he's so incredible to be around um and so he was open to those ideas the the jt ads where he had like the what the bird and stuff like all that sort of yeah you know it's just yeah it was really cool and so um in a you could make a big impression in those days because i mean you used to see an ad like that's what you had to do you had to produce a two-page ad and a catalog and nowadays you're gonna put all this effort into that Instagram post, the same amount of effort, and it's gone yeah. in a day.
0: Yeah, and everything's so disposable. We, we look at and it honestly, it breaks my heart. Because... Oh,
1: that was cool, and then we swipe. Yeah, and so th- that's the thing right now is the attention span of everyone, and I, you can't just say young people; it's like no, everyone. It's everyone. We all, we all just flick through it so fast, and it's so unfortunate because it's really difficult to capture people. Um, attention that way um, gear brands uh, there's doing making good solid gear is fairly easy these days it's not like it used to be the pants had an incredible amount of uh research and development put into them helmets and stuff and you can nowadays you can just send something to the factory in china or and go hey just duplicate this and they can make it almost the exact same and you didn't do any you didn't design anything
0: yeah, no, it's completely changed. And yeah, like you're, you're totally right. The, um, and that's, I think really what made monsters of you guys. And like you lived in such an era where print and like, like uh, up me being up here in Canada, like I got at best 24 magazines a year. That's all I get. I got one live Supercross. and otherwise like there wasn't, there wasn't YouTube. There was none of like that. Uh, had no opportunities to, to check that stuff out. So any piece of like any iconic, um, ad, like I was, I was, I was looking at it over and over and reanalyzing. It, and that's why I look at these photos like this one right here. Uh, first of all, pulling an awesome whole shot. Is this the, is this the Unijet,
1: uh, car? No, from not, the Yamaha? Not, not yet. Not yet. This is not yet. This is uh, 91. Yeah. And this is during the outdoor motocross championship, you've got. Kudrowski, almost who almost won the
0: supercross championship who team.
1: was yeah yeah,
0: yeah points, McGrath man. and
1: I were really close yeah so Kudrowski on the number four Kawasaki um you've got it looks like uh uh Guy Cooper Mike Brown tucked just behind him and Doug Henry um not sure what this 125 might be McGrath or Buell or somebody it's hard to say exactly what number's on there um You know i i I can't tell you what race this is from maybe still city or someplace but this was the time of year where especially with motocross riding is that in the 125 championship i started to separate myself from the other 125 supercross riders and started to become of of us that were on what what they called a pro-am license and would be riding 125 full-time i was I was becoming the consistently the top finisher because you got to remember at that time you had uh Kodrowski, Cooper and these guys would ride 250 supercross. So they were they were like the sort of premier riders that were riding the smaller displacement in motocross. And I I won a moto that year. I I I I really started to get myself between Cooper and uh Kudrowski and some of the veteran guys uh, pretty consistently at the end of the year. And I remember I I won Bud's or or I went two two at Bud's Creek one year, and I thought I won the overall. And Keith McCarty is like, hold on, settle down, because Kudrowski three and one. Cooper went three one and one two, and they each got the extra point. And I'm like, I got it, and they're like, no, no, you got third. I'm like shit.
0: Yeah, two two for third. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a number of guys that have had that fate. That's no yeah. no fun whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, you get that extra point for winning. I had to put this photo in there. I love this gear. This, they, they brought the, Thor brought this back, uh, oh, four or five years, maybe three or four years ago now. Uh, it's a great look. This is another awesome, uh, paint job, uh, on the helmet. And, uh, one of the only years that we saw you in CD boots. Yeah. Not, uh,
1: 91. Um, yeah. And I had, uh, I don't know how I acquired, uh, a black pair of CDs, but they I only had these blue ones and then white ones, and they wouldn't give me black ones. So I had this black pair that I would wear uh, only on special occasions. I would save them because I probably bought them or something. Mm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. the The amount of colors going on in this photo is epic. By the way, like this is so yeah. 1991. It fucking hurts, man.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, wait, hey wait to see what I have going with Wee Big Moto right now. I, I, we had a little, a little uh, sampler when i rode the vet um 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 world vets at farley castle last month uh i have this i've uh, a full set of retro gear there's going to be two different jerseys so, do, so two different designs mm-hmm. um it's full it's as 90s as it gets so we're we're having some fun with it so that'll be available soon is
0: the the wee big todd covey uh covey Correct. um is it covey or yep. covey todd covey yeah Todd Covey, is that a connection through Fox from back in the day? Cause I know he used to do some design work for Fox or is that.
1: Yeah. Todd was one of the lead designers at Fox. He was, he was like the crazy mad scientist designer, uh, that never was necessarily out front. Yeah. But Todd, Todd was one of like Todd and Pete Fox were designing all of the shift product and, and ads and all that stuff back in the early days of shift and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Todd's fantastic, fantastic designer. Um, I was having a conversation the other night at the Alpine Stars, um, 60th anniversary, uh, event with, uh, Jerome Maj and David Durham. Um, it, 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 you probably know Durham's name yeah. from Fox and Alpine Star and all this sort of stuff. He's with Thor. Um, David is just absolutely brilliant. Jerome Maj is equally as brilliant. We were talking about, okay, who is like, like who are the greatest motocross gear designers of all time? And, and so we're having some cocktails and we're talking about Todd and, and, and it was like, you know what, Todd may be the craziest and most brilliant. He, he may be too crazy or he may be absolutely brilliant. He's kind of on that fine line. Right. Uh But yeah, they, they all have a tremendous love and respect for each other, even though they're all kind of working in the same, uh, in the, in the, in the same arena, but yeah. So we'll, we'll see Todd's got a lot, a lot of great ideas for we big and what we're doing now is we've created um he's done some retro gear that is sort of a 1985 build if you will Mm -hmm. um and the stuff that i wore at loretta's and at farley and going forward is a sort of a modern cut um if you will with all the proper stretch and fit and all that stuff that modern racewear would have and so we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with it it's gonna be very limited very boutique and niche and and uh knowing todd it's gonna be fucking crazy
0: yes absolutely (laughs) i i had actually on him on this podcast i would love to like i know all of the the designs that todd came up with that actually made it i would love to see his notebook full of of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because you know there's some outlandish things that he brought to the table that someone like that either peed or someone at fox said no to uh the guy is not yeah he's a design genius yeah
1: Oh. So what's what's interesting though about this is is I rode for Thor for 10 years. Yep. Um I had a deal with JT lined up going into the 87 season. Okay. Uh, my last year on uh, mini bikes and the deal fell through like 11th hour. Why? Uh I don't remember exactly why but it went sour. And so this Torsten Holman brand called and just about 2 months before that they had um they had just hired Jim Gallagher as lead designer, young guy at the time, older than me, of course. But um Bob Maynard was probably had just taken over as president of the company. I don't think that they had been purchased by Parts Unlimited at the time. I think it was still, I think Torsten still owned the yeah, owned the company. I think they didn't get
0: purchased
1: until um, 1997. Okay, so so yeah, so during that time, and I formed a great relationship with Jim Gallagher and jim and i you know we did 10 years together this 125 supercross or i'm sorry 125 motocross champion motocross of nation stuff all the fast boys and all that sort of stuff we went from from hallman racing to torsten hallman original Racewear all the way through um and what was great i still have the pants um in 1996 At the last national, uh, the race where MC and I had the battle royale, I wore a set of pants and my, and my, my butt logo was the Zeppelin four logo with all the four symbols. And it said 10 years gone. Okay. Jim Gallagher was a drummer. So he was a rock drummer before he became a designer. Yep. And, and his band, they played all kinds of Zeppelin and stuff. And his best song, like his favorite Zeppelin song to play was 10 years gone. Well, we didn't know at the time, uh, but it, it was, uh, kind of what fortuitous. Is that the word I'm looking for here? That, yes. that this, that, uh, not long after that would be when I accepted the deal with shift and I'd be leaving Thor after 10 years. And so I still have these pants. It's really important to me and Jim and our relationship. Uh, it just, it was like this 10 years gone vibe. It's like, wow, like that's how it lined up. And, and actually I seen Jim uh, earlier this year at uh, parts unlimited show in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. I seen him at the airport and we got a chance to catch up and it's like, Oh, how old's your, you know, your oldest kid now? And it's like 35. And it's like, wait, what? He was just like 11. And yeah. it's like, no, 20, 25 years or so has gone by. And, um, so it's still great to catch up with them. And Jim did a great job of, of, of being lead designer, then head of design at Thor and really is responsible for giving guys like David Durham and, and a number of other great designers, uh, their opportunity and stuff. So lots of, lots of great memories. Um, didn't leave Thor on great terms. It was a, it was kind of a tumultuous uh you know contract negotiation where this new brand shift and AXO and Thor and I was sort of right on the cusp of 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 possibly winning the supercross title and and so we made it all the way to the 250 motocross championship celebrated a lot of great wins and and a lot of good stuff so I'm thankful that uh, that we had those ten ten 10 great years with Thor.
0: Yeah, and and that last race uh aside from like the obviously you go uh overseas and race uh another race for Thor at Morecross Nations that year. Um yeah, maybe, maybe would what would go down as one of your best days on a dirt bike period um with the really clutch performance at the tail end of the 96 season wearing Thor. Uh and we're going to get to that a little bit later on. Uh and like like I said, I I told you we were going to go long. We're damn we're down near an hour into this thing uh so uh we'll keep going along here uh kawasaki days still in thor um like great looking stuff honestly you had some really good looking uh gear uh and then if i'm not mistaken this was also your last year in scott goggles before you'd wear an arnett for a good portion of your career as well
1: yeah so that that picture on the left i probably have an arnett sticker on my helmet and i'm wearing scott goggles because um, Arnett glasses were founded by Greg Arnett, who was a former, um, factory uh, mechanic, um, got into the eyewear business. Um, and, and I don't remember exactly where the connection was. And I remember talking to Bevo, who, who was with Scott for decades. And I said, Hey, I want to be allowed to have a separate sunglass contract separate from goggles. And I said, it's just a sunglass contract. like. It's not goggles. And he goes, dude, Greg's going to make goggles eventually. No, no, no. It's okay. Be real. But I mean, it probably paid me an extra 5,000 or 25,000. Who knows at the time, you know, and Arnett sunglasses were like the coolest shit ever. The early nineties, mid nineties, the chrome ravens and all this stuff. And, and it was, it was great. You know, I mean, I was with Scott for, 15 years or something. I mean, just a wonderful relationship. But then Arnett was able to offer me a ton of money, uh, to develop the goggle and go that direction. And so that's, that's where the business went. And, and a lot of my, I, I developed a lot of really strong friendships with the people at Arnett, uh, Mike Parsons in, you know, you know, in, uh, you know, in a particular, uh, I don't remember exactly what his job was in sports marketing, but Mark, Mike is a, a pro surfer, legendary big wave surfer, and really taught me to surf. We started hanging out, became really close, and I just gravitated towards that vibe with Arnett and Bevo seeing the writing on the wall. And and eventually, uh, 97 is when I signed the deal to launch the new Arnett goggle.
0: Yeah, 97 saw a lot of change for you, uh, new gear, new goggles and, uh, and a new number that you would take on to, uh, to a pair of championships, uh, that particular year. But this was good stuff. Like this was a good looking bike. Uh, what I love about this era still is that essentially the graphics that you raced with were not totally indifferent from what Kawasaki's came with that particular year, even the year prior to this, you're essentially running like a very stock-looking Yamaha. Like you're not even you don't even have arches on the, the fenders. This is just a Bell Ray sticker in the front. And I would also question whether or not they actually used Bell Ray in your bike. Uh it was probably max I think we, we, no,
1: I think we did adapt to we we, okay. we switched to like casserole or something the next year. But yep. you know, the significance, uh, I don't recognize the picture on the left. Uh, obviously the picture in the center is Steel City 1996. Um, this is Bercy. Me,
0: uh, that's Bercy on the end, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
1: the one on the right is going to be, it, uh, appears to be St. Louis 1997. That's right. That's St. Louis. That, You're right. Yeah. That, or I'm sorry, 1996. I have that great, you know, massive smile on my face. So, um, we know why, you know, both of those races, uh, were just incredible. Um, I think the fact that my adversary was Jeremy McGrath. And the, the level that he was at, uh, especially during that time period, especially in supercross uh, and to be able to nab a win and then eventually a championship. Um, and, and he was basically second in both of those was very validating. Um, and you know, I, I, I wish I could have nabbed more supercross titles, but that's the way that it went, you know, more, more wins, things like that. Right. But the steel city 1996 was, was really. Uh, it was such um such a meaningful race to me, to because that summer, that year, I I was knocking on the door. I was chasing Jeremy down. I was getting closer. There'd be races. I mean, I I got the start most of the time. There were multiple Supercrosses where I kind of handed the win to him by by my own mistakes. Not not saying that, mm-hmm. like I would mess up. And he'd take the win and it just became so frustrating. And so what built inside me was just this desire and this determination, first off, to, to stop him from winning every supercross, right? We all were trying, but that night in St. Louis, every, the stars aligned and I got the job done and I didn't make any mistakes. Um, and then in the motocross championship that year, I mean, it came down to the, the final two motos and it was just absolute tug of war. And if you watch the very first lap of Steel City 96, he passes me over the big double in the pro section, and then I square him back up and go around the outside of him and just bonsai this jump. And at that point, that one point is when we both knew that I was going to do whatever it took to win the championship. And I kept him behind me the entire rest of the day. So we're talking the entire first moto, the entire second moto, I was totally in control. I knew where he was at, and I was going to do whatever it took to win. And and I, I ended up winning both motos that day. And it just was such such an incredible victory for myself and Kawasaki and and Jeremy Albrecht, my mechanic, and our team and my trainer John Hall and my my family, everybody around me. That was it. Was just such a momentous victory for us uh that yeah there's a lot of great memories come out of that that day
0: certainly uh, you 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 tackled the giant that day and and came out on top and it was like there was never in question uh I've gone back and watched that race i honestly probably watched it every 6 months or so just cuz i like I, I i i literally have a terabyte of old races and and that one gets uh, more than a few plays um one thing that we'll get into i think it i think it's the next slide is um everyone always talks about how your black year the the ship the shift stuff was was hot and you were like a badass wearing the 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 black year all dollars like dollars to donuts this thor gear is hotter and heavier because i had one of these jerseys and these one of these like these jerseys those were full-blown cotton they're like the like the uh um, yeah the gear
1: on the right yeah the gear on the right was super terrible hot. yeah <laughs> it was all printed it was all yeah. printed so it didn't vent yeah no. that was terrible like a mock like a mock neck on it, everything that you wouldn't do these days. Um, but Jim Gallagher wanted to make me tough. He wanted to, he wanted <laughs> to the part of year the after year, uh, make me work harder. So I appreciate that, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it did not breathe. Ooh, 1990.
0: Oh, yeah. I, 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 I may have mixed these up a little bit when, when putting them together. This so, should have came uh, earlier. But, uh Yeah. Like ninety on the cowies. This is a good look, man. Like honestly, you always you always had uh, good looking stuff throughout. But like Thor with the the blue the blue bib is that uh, like what was the blue bib for?
1: So it doesn't get recognized until nineteen ninety two. Okay, but in nineteen ninety we had the first one twenty five shootout. Okay, okay, I won that event at L A Coliseum. Um. And then one again the next year, yeah. uh, on Yamaha, the Dave Coombs Senior Memorial 125 showdown, right, for whatever reason, only goes back to ninety two. Okay. So I don't know what the deal was there. I don't know why they don't want to recognize these first two years, but that's what the bib would show. The blue was probably for West Coast. So it was East Coast, West Coast type of thing.
0: Okay. The the helmet with the go- the the pink goggles is a look. That is strong head to toe. The white C like Well and remember
1: I think they gave us those showy helmets like the week before. And that was some like Troy Lee showy thing. Look, it there's not even any like sponsor logos on it. It's like they gave it to us for that race, yeah. Yeah. It's a cotton jersey with printed stuff, very like a like a like a like a long sleeve t shirt printed. Now the one on the right was this crazy 90s uh i don't even remember what they Checker called the checkerboard and all that yeah. the checkerboard it was very 90s yeah jim was
0: is that Matasovic behind you, you
1: yeah yeah jim Gallagher yes. was on some hallucinogens uh th- that th- during that time truly spider web yeah uh, it's crazy
0: i love this like this picture like in this picture next to you here th- that's 100 chicken uh yeah like looking up at the probably a video board that's not actually there his video boards didn't exist yet. Uh The great looking showy helmet. Who's uh, who's standing next to you? Who's uh, who's giving you? Oh, so that's some... my dad. That's your old man. All that's right, my cool. dad.
1: Yeah, just like on the '85 picture yeah. or the or the '1980s or the when I was on '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my father. He was my mechanic first year as a factory rider. So guys like myself, Michael Rocco, Denny Stevenson, um, our dads weren't really ready to cut the cord, and thankfully because. Once Cowie, the factory bike was pretty shitty. And if you notice, this is, um, first race a year, first motocross of the season in Gainesville, Florida at okay. Gatorback. The so chicken would have been on the line for the 125 class. And it was crazy because we would, we would do a lot of testing and stuff with factory Kawasaki, but their engines totally sucked. Okay. Yeah. So my dad, my dad, who was an engine builder and a fantastic engine builder at the time, uh, so we had box vans back then Mm -hmm. okay so my dad would do his own modifications and we would ride an engine that wasn't the approved factory kawasaki engine and any of the spare parts and any of that stuff he literally kept at the hotel or in the cab of the box van or whatever because you know he Roy Turner was a team manager. He knew that we weren't on the up and up, but my dad's like, I'm building engines so Jeff Emmy can be successful. I'm not building engines for Jeff Matasovic in his story, like unapologetic, like sorry. Jerry Campbell was, uh, was a chicken, chicken's uh, mechanic then. And it was just super like sketch and like amateurish and, you know, not professional. But my dad was like, Sorry, ain't happening. I'm not building anything for chicken. I'm only building it for my son. And thankfully, because we had fantastic bikes, fantastic engines. Um Yeah, and that's just the way it went. That's how it was.
0: You were national <laughs> number 18 this year, did you not?
1: I earned earned eighteen for yeah that's am.
0: yeah like that's sick as a pro am rider um and yeah like yeah your your dad of course and then the year two years after that the Unijet carb that just like that goes down into motocross yeah yeah the monojet sorry um yeah, yeah and, the, and the
1: thing about the yeah and the thing about the number is is that your your national pro points that went towards a national number because uh, it changed every year in 125 supercross those points didn't count
0: yes it was only nationals
1: it was only 125 nationals which uh were it was separate for 125 supercross you had a pro-am license and for the nationals it was a different thing and then of course 250 supercross and and 500s and 250s outdoors all that counted towards your national number so this is a weird thing how the 90s were um that's just how it how it was so.
0: Yeah, no, I actually just released a video essentially talking about how numbers get earned nowadays and permanent numbers. And like, it's actually crazy to think because when they first introduced the permanent number system uh, in, I believe it was 2000, essentially how yeah. it went was um, like it was in order to get a permanent number going forward, you had to be you have to be top. Top 10 in overall points, and that's still that way now, or if you're going to win a championship, whether it's the a 450 championship. No, it or one wasn't of the not top
1: 10 in points. You, you, top, the uh, single digit numbers only went to champions. champions.
0: Right. But a, so a, if, a, you, a if you number, won <laughs> your
1: first, yeah, if you won your first championship, uh, then you could pick whatever number you wanted. Uh, nobody else could pick a single digit number. That I, I think it's kind of immaterial these days. And, Guys, that, you know, we all kind of we're still in this vibe of having a low number meant something. And nowadays, like, you know, you, you, you know, you have your sort of branded number, like what, like what, um, Reed was 22, Roxanne being 94, things yeah. like that. And yeah, and that, that makes more sense for those things to jump around or to have a branded number. But, but then how do you, like, where, you know, like the seniority comes in into play of, who gets to pick what number and things. So uh, I thought it was a really cool part of motocross history when, when, you know, the, the, you earn those numbers and your number changed every year. I thought it was something cool, but then it kind of ran its course where the value of having a branded number became greater than what this, this system of, of renewing your number every year based on the amount of championship points that you earned came into play so it's just got it, end of an era
0: certainly absolutely and, and nowadays like in order to get a a two digit like a, a permanent two digit number you have to be top 10 in points but I think year over year, if you look at least probably eight of those top 10 guys already have a permanent number. So there's usually only one or two guys every year that are yeah. choosing a number. And since the fact that we have like a number of guys that just hang on to their numbers forever, although Chad's going to lose his 22 this year, uh, like at one point, I think the, the, the highest number that wasn't already given to someone was like 29 or 30 or something like that. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to look at. So. This is oh, this is my one of my favorite eras. Uh this is when I start uh paying attention to the sport. This is my wheelhouse. Uh the how high you got your leg in this photo is one of my favorite things. I I've I used to trace this out on uh, as a kid uh, like over and over and over again. I love this photo. I, if I can't actually remember where that where that's at, but the black pants still 97. Yep. That's Steel City 97. Yep. Um deep ass rut that you're uh you're riding through right there take me through these photos yeah, was, and yeah the, obviously the emmy goes in the bit in the middle which is near and dear to my heart because i still i like i my i've made my girlfriend watch that movie my friend um so yeah go through these so
1: yeah if you start from the right sort of chronologically is steel city not steel city sorry Glen helen That's 1997 right. uh i really was firing on all cylinders the bike was amazing. The gear looked badass.
0: You just won My the Supercross championship,
1: all time high. Went to Steel or went to Glen Helen that day. McGrath was pretty quick. Albertine was fast. Um, um But it's like I just was so dialed in that day. And 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 I remember the second moto I won by quite a long ways. And I remember you know I I I typically didn't try to win races like then I didn't. Like, okay, I'm just going to put it to them and, and just look at my lap times every lap. It was like, if you got out to a 10-second lead, you're going to back it down, be safe. Know where second place is at, things like that. But it was it was super hot that day. And I remember um, the second moto, I raced pretty hard to the checkered flag. And I, w- and I wanted to hurry up and do the interview with Davey Coombs or whoever it was for ESPN. By, I wanted to have my helmet off by the time Albertine came by in second, uh, to kind of, you know, do that like head games type of thing. I don't, I don't remember if I actually achieved that or not. I'd have to go back and look, but it was like, I, I just really, I was everything, my flow, my confidence, the bike was just awesome that day. And Glenholm was gnarly then. And, and this, this photo on the right, uh, somebody at Motocross Action got that. I don't remember the name of who took the photo. Um, Is it a Friday my ex-wife, Coon photo? I don't think so. But some years ago, um, my my ex-wife had this photo blown up. So I actually have this in my house, a huge three by five foot um, um, photo of this on the foam core. I love it. And then she sent the slide back to MXA and somebody lost it. So that slide never got digitized. So it's gone forever.
0: So, wow. In like in <laughs> any type of high res. My, wow. That's cool.
1: No, no. I mean, you can, I've got some copies of it that some guys have worked on. Um, but yeah. And then you fast forward to um, this is this when uh, Jeremy Albrecht and I are filming the Emilio Imigos commercial for President smooth. This is at the entrance to steel city. And we did this Saturday morning before the national, <laughs> And Amazing. I had already won the title. So everything was kind of chill. So we knock out the image commercial and that whole craziness. And they film Adam Barker and Troy Adamitis who, who uh produced um film directed everything shot uh Fresno smooth. They were there that day and they actually got racing footage that in the movie, J-Bone even put like the pit board out one lap in the second moto. This is like oats and brand and things like that. So they've, we filmed a bunch of the presidents Smooth moved there that 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 weekend. I had I had won the title the the week before at Binghamton,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it was like okay, I I completed it. I've done what I wanted to do. I didn't even ride that week. We literally went out to the lake and we were wakeboarding all all week long, and then came to the final race and won both motos. That's where this photo in the white jersey. So that's basically the snow camel pant with a white jersey instead of black um and that photo a japanese photographer got it and i'm i think it was shin shintaro or uh what was his name it was in dirt cool if i remember correctly so i'd have to check and to to remember who who exactly got the photo but um yeah just kind of they had never ran the track down this little there was this little embankment and they ran it down the embankment and then you turned and went straight back up so it created this massive rut uh that went through this and they just happened to Gets that right at the right time.
0: Yeah, no, that is that is about as iconic as it gets. Both these looks, by the way, are cold as ice. Like this is this mm-hmm. is a this is a good look. the The, the black Alpine stars, uh, the helmet's on point. We already talked about the Arnett goggles, but like the Arnett sticker across the front of the visor. Um, yeah, and like, uh, are those shift gloves or those? Or are they Fox gloves?
1: No, they're shift gloves, green ones. We didn't yeah. have. We only had the green, blue, and orange. Yep. Um, I always had bad luck in the orange. So I got like bad juju from it. Mm-hmm. Pete's like, Hey, you got to run the orange sometime. And I'm like, I don't want to run the orange. Uh, you know, you have one bad race and all of a sudden it's I like, also it's never loved you in the orange
0: gear, the, the orange no, gear I from like, 90, I never liked it either. I don't know. The green looked good. Uh, and the black, this looked this was look good. Uh,
1: was there not also a blue? Yeah. There was orange, blue, and green. Yeah. And then we did this snow camo and and the jersey there was incredibly thick and hot mm-hmm. but we would um it was a free ride jersey essentially but uh i would wear a chest protector under it so it would kind of push it away from my chest mm-hmm. and you can't really see it but the neck when they would print the shift on the shoulder and the sponsor logos they actually silk screen those and silk screen my name and number on the back when they did that it would stretch out the collar really far so the collar would set and all of it would kind of set away from you. And so I actually got really good airflow down it. Okay. But but for me it was totally mental wearing black on the hottest days, uh is, is that I just it was like a psychological thing that I like I loved the gear and the look at the time, just wearing sort of black and white when everybody else had all kinds of different colors. So, yeah, it was yeah. Cool. I
0: didn't know. I hear this is a bad look and uh before we move on from Jabo and like the two of you guys are two peas in the pod like I'm literally hearing this ad in my head while I'm looking at this um like as far as mechanic rider relationship um this like this has to be top ten in the whole sport maybe top five like this this is special
1: yeah I mean we had a you know yeah we had such a great relationship and we were friends for a long time before he was my my uh my uh, mechanic Right. Uh, at the end of '95, um, when I joined Kawasaki, I asked Steve Butler, my mechanic at Yamaha, Yamaha to come over w- with me. Uh, he decided not to leave Yamaha, which I don't. I think he's still at Yamaha, headed headed up a research and development. I think so. Yeah. He's made a great. He's made a great, uh, great uh, career, and that was obviously the right choice for Steve. And I was super bummed, um, but because Steve was the only mechanic that I had ever had uh, besides my dad. And so then I signed with Kawasaki and it's like, it's going to be Ron Wood and then his dad gets sick or something. And so he says he doesn't want to travel. And then it was, uh there were like four, uh, Um a Danny Bentley was on the list and then that didn't happen. I mean, Spencer Bloomer, there was somebody else I can't think of. Um One thing led to another, they all fell through and it's like, well, now there's literally nobody else on the list, and so I suggested to Roy Turner. I said, "Well, what do you think about Jeremy Albrecht? He's working on Pedro Gonzalez's bikes at North County Yamaha. He's a good friend of mine. He's a quality mechanic. You know, he he deserves a shot, if you will, at to you know to you know to step up from being on a support level team to up to the up to the factory team." And what was great is that Jeremy and I, we really took this journey together and we had such a good time along the way that it made it so memorable. And we, he allowed me to be me and whatever that meant, some good, some bad, but we, we just like, we worked hard and we we played hard and, and, you know, that we, we ran it pretty hard, burnt the candle at both ends. Um And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I really let him down in 99 when, when the shit went bad and, and I lost my ride with Kawasaki because that was kind of the end of our working uh, relationship and the sort of end of, end of that era where we had just four amazing years uh, together. Um But the time that we did, he just, he, uh that we did it together and that sort of, writer mechanic relationship sort of team within the team thing was so strong and it was so really amazing to be able to 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 do the work and and experience to go on that journey with somebody that was one of my best friends and for us to share in 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 this that that way it was it was really pretty pretty awesome
0: no doubt, yeah. You guys uh, match each other quite well. I, I, I don't. I under. I, I wonder who gets more Fresno sprout smooth like quotes yelled at them. Uh, oh, he raced does. It. you he? Uh, does he? Fat ass Jack and Cokes. Like that's all it is.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I sure. figured. And they're like, like, what's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, man. Just don't feel like myself. You need some oats and bran. Okay. Uh <laughs> I loved it. Uh, can't get out of this thing without talking about this, this ad right here. It's one of my favorites. Uh, we got, um, you're enjoying a nice glass of champagne with some young ladies. Um, you're holding on to a, is, is that the, is it the supercross championship or is that, uh,
1: that is, that is, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, so supercross obviously in Vegas was Saturday night. This was Sunday night uh at the MGM hotel we had this big suite uh set up for this photo shoot this is another pete fox creation um um um, these were uh either friends or wives of of friends one of those was my girlfriend at the time uh they were all friends and so they all agreed to to do this shoot um while all the guys and everybody from stiff fox all that were inside the suite and just keeping the party going. If we were in it. Chris Holtner shot this photo. Yes. It took us like two hours to do it. Like that's, that's probably not champagne in there anymore. It's just hot tub water getting poured back in there.
0: So, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. getting pruny. So, You're like, can we get this? Like my abs are only going to yeah. look like this, this good for this long.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, uh, uh, yeah, you got Michelle, Michelle, Monica lonnie and jen so and the, on the far left is Ryan uses ex-wife
0: Amazing. and
1: <laughs> she wanted to be in the pick because they're all they were all friends and everything but she was actually pregnant so she's like i can just oh, be man. in i gotta be in up to the water level right Fair so enough, yeah. she couldn't you know yeah you know, yeah so that's it's, pretty uh, funny yeah, uh, it was just like, dude, we had, like, I hardly slept at all Saturday night. We had the awards banquet just before this. It was like, I was so tired. I just, like, come on, Holtner, get the photo. Like, how many different, you know, I mean, they worked at it forever and ever. So we're out here, quote, working and all the guys are in the suite, right? Cocktailing it up, having a good time. Come on, we're going to go out. Let's go finish the shoot. And so it, it was, you know, art imitating life in in a certain in a certain way yeah. but that was that was one of the things that i was open to these these sort of shocking you know uh sort of you know going like crossing the line a little bit with marketing and advertising and things like this and i'm sure this isn't everyone's vision for what how they want to advertise or market successes and victories and stuff like this but for us this is this this was it and so people think of it as a very iconic uh advertisement celebrating uh, a great victory.
0: Absolutely yeah this this is right up there and uh before we leave this one I just want to mention the fact that your Supercross championship trophy looks a lot cooler then the for I I can't imagine they weren't made out of plastic this last weekend uh at the super motocross World like World Championship with like this the SMX thing like sort of embossed on there that like I I love World like I love Supercross and all that but this is a much more like this is like this this trophy right here looks more like a trophy than what uh, Hayden Deegan had uh, was holding over his head
1: uh this last weekend yeah it but- was. It was great. It, it really was uh, about the first, uh, m- maybe the first year for this era of trophies. They still give this style of trophy now. They mm-hmm. they dress it up a lot more. Um, one thing also about this ad is this was the Racer X ad. So Davey Coombs yes. was like, hell yeah, I'll run this. Um, um, Jody Weitzel and, uh, Roland Hines, uh, editor and owner of motocross action who was really the the rival like it was motocross action racer x at the time
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um um, they would not run this ad
0: i'm shocked by that the other
1: the other jackpot ad was me like standing next to a limousine or something like yeah it was not quite as effective and nobody talks about the other one but you know they had different values and different things yeah that's hilarious um, going up
0: I know I know I gotta let you get going sometime soon here. Uh I think I got one or two more here for you. Uh the Purple Crew right? like it's not Yama, it's not blue crew anymore. It's it's uh or it's it's it not purple uh, crew. it was Purple Crew. Um a couple of great looks here. Uh the YZ250 is that is that mostly in stock trim? Like is that a stock bike yeah, with your graphics a, on it?
1: Yeah, it was a photo shoot we did for the upcoming year uh would have been um uh, 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 94 going this was 95 but the, the bike was 95 but it was four ninety. 90 it was in 94 and for some reason Bob Starr and the guys um, who re- did all the advertising for Yamaha Bob Star is absolutely brilliant um, fantastic individual to work with one of the most creative minds at a manufacturer that there has ever been we had so much fun like The bald heads are pulling the hair out. They're like crazy ads that we did uh, in the early nineties was all Bob star, but they flew us back to St. Louis, some little podunk motocross track flash, like flat track. That's the littlest little janky track. They flew us all the way out there to shoot these photos on this bike. And it's like, I remember Justin Buckaloo was on the mini bike because he was, you know, he was a Yamaha, you know, the only amateur team rider at the time. Yeah. yeah, number so. 43 on a YZ80? Something, yeah. And you, yeah. you you just had to get that, you just had to get that, that shot where you've seen the bike, right? So.
0: Right, right, right. Well, it's still, it's a good looking shot with like trees in the background and like every, every color under the sun on you. Those, uh, uh, the Alpine stars with the yellow buckles, those things were iconic. And, uh, we talked about the, the monojet uh, bike. That is the, the, that is that bike right there, is it not?
1: That was 93. I think by then we were running a regular carburetor, but mm. that helmet was definitely 92. That was my 92 uh championship helmet. So that was one of my favorite ones. Notice you got that JG logo on there. That was for our friend Jeff Grafton who passed away, oh, uh, wow. one of the guys. And, yeah, I even have like a Coors Light sticker on there. So, yes, you do. I don't know. I don't know.
0: That, we're, we're breaking all kinds of rules with that. And side note, I think that uh, – You know why the... it's
1: okay to drink? You know why it's okay to as a racer? That in your downtime to drink Coors Light, but not other beers.
0: There's no alcohol in it.
1: No, because Coors Light won't slow you down. You remember the advertisement? That's right. You know what? That's, that
0: that was true. That, that, that was a positioning statement that they made years ago.
1: Um, I would have first seen that statement when I was a minor. And then when we all became adults and we're going out to Lake Havasu, it was always, you gotta, the only beer you can drink is Coors Light because it won't slow you down.
0: We'll slow you down. Well, are, are you even 21 in that photo? Yeah,
1: probably just that probably might Jeff. Be 93. Yeah. 93 said have been 22. Yeah. So it's okay.
0: Yeah. It's fine. Uh, well, I'm sure, uh, uh, Jet enjoyed himself some beverages after his uh, big championship wins and he sees all the like, tender age so of twenty. So, so. uh, sure so. I think this is the last thing I got for you. Uh, Edge Sports. You'd mentioned going from Yamaha's to Kawasaki's. I loved this. This Yamaha, I had the, the toy dirt bike, the, these, the, these ones like this of Jeff Emming was one of the first toys I ever had. I no longer have it because I think I played with it a little bit too hard back in the day and it actually came out of its packaging. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was a great look. Uh, I don't know the full, like that, that picture, they kind of, I, when I edited this to cut it off, you're, you're sporting, uh, double, uh, casts, uh, in there from a couple of broken wrists. Yeah. I believe at the beginning of, uh, would have been the, I guess it would like,
1: did you have permanent number three? Yeah. So the number 11 photo is the U S open of Supercross. Yes. And you first that they had it second year. They had it. Um, that was after Kawasaki fired me for getting in trouble in Lake Havasu being an idiot. Um, so I, I had this captain America sort of helmet done by Troy. Um, and then that for that race, is when we started to put together what would then become my race team. Um, we had Br- White Brothers on as a sponsor, um, FMF FMF was a big sponsor, Enzo was doing the suspension, and we got this little retailer from Ranch Cucamonga, California called the Edge dot com. In the beginning of the of the World Wide Web, they were an online retailer. Okay. Long before it was really like valid and was a, you could actually sell stuff efficiently. Um And so the edge sports came on, they had a bunch of venture capitalist money coming in. They were developing um a B2B uh, network that they were literally, uh, they had millions of dollars coming in. Uh, at the time, our contract was about $750,000 a year. Wow. Uh, we had a two-year deal, which was a ton of money, more than what we needed at the time and won the u.s open uh just incredible night and really validated uh sort of my my sort of comeback um we decided to build the race team with tony strangio and tim dixon my partners and then i go out uh, a week before the first supercross i break both wrists make a little mistake and paid dearly for it and as it would be that was my that that was it that was that was u.s open was my last win and Literally, when I was riding a motorcycle better than any time in my entire career, I make a mistake and break both wrists, and then it was over. So that was that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Picture on the right is one of my mechanics and one of my oldest and dearest friends, Billy Phelps. Yes. Um, And so that's when, uh, after 2000, we end of end of the motocross season 2000, we switched back to Kawasaki again, and Bruce Sternstrom said, "Okay, we need a secondary." uh two fifty team and so we switched all of our colors to red and green and white. Um the nine ninety was Michael Byrne Sorry. brought him over from Australia. Uh we had Casey Johnson riding also. Oh
0: I didn't um, know that.
1: Yeah, so uh, uh Billy was working on Burner's bikes, uh Chanykowski was working on Casey's bikes. Uh we built an amazing team, all that. And then before Supercross was over, uh, our sponsor, the Edge Sports Um, they basically ran out of all all the VC money that they had coming in. So, I mean, they were, they were $600,000 behind in payments when we finally just had to, had -hmm. to shut it down. And what people don't understand either is that we were actively working with Steve Astafin, who is in Roxanne's agent, among other significant achievements in his career. Uh, Steve Astafin and his company, The Family, the first version, um, he was working on team sponsorship for us. We had the US Army. We had them on the hook, like hmm. three year deal, $3 million a year for three years, $9 wow. million dollar deal in 2001. Wow. Like, like we would have had the biggest budget of certainly of any, we would have had the of biggest any privateer system. team. Yeah. Yeah. We might not have the biggest budget of any team, but we had the biggest sponsorship of any team, which was basically all of our budget. And, um, and so we were like, okay, I was going to keep funding the team. I was going to keep funding it. And, and, and then we signed U.S., uh, U.S. Army two semis, like the, I mean, we're talking full deal. It was like, this is too easy. Money? Great. Millions of dollars? Yeah. Come on in. And then they, at the 11th hour, uh, they, uh, they canceled it. Wow. So, you know, they, they, they decided not to go with it. Then at that point was when I was like, all right, I'm done. Cost me 50 grand or so to actually shut my team down, finish up leases and contracts and stuff like that. But that year, our goal was to have a rider inside of the top 10 in supercross and Michael Byrne, um, and, and, and us, we all achieved that. So. Um, that was kind of the end of the edge sports. Um, and, uh, so kind of wiped my hands of that and went into retirement.
0: Oh, well, uh, yeah. And then you honestly, you're still extremely, uh, like you're awesome on a dirt bike for a lot of years after that, man. Yeah. Uh, still kind of like you'd come back at Loretta's every once in a while, whoop up on, uh, Josh Hansen. I'm sure he cried about that, cried himself to sleep at the uh, Hurricane Mills. Um, but, uh, dude, this has been so much fun. Uh, like I said, we could do five more of these and still have five more else to do. Um, I love that your your memory for this sort of thing. Uh, but it's, it's about dinner time for you as it is for me as well. So, um, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope, I hope, uh, you'll want to come on again sometime and, uh, yeah, hopefully the people that watch slash listen to this really enjoy it.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate everybody watching this. I know it's been an hour or so, but, Uh, taking this walk down memory lane. I appreciate it, Brad. uh, You know, um, it's really nice to uh, uh, be appreciated for some of your achievements um, and uh, to be um, a part of motocross history where I was a little kid and a fan uh, long before I was ever a a professional racer or a champion. So, um, you know, I I appreciate being recognized.
0: Absolutely. And the next time we'll see you is uh, for World Supercross, yes?
1: Hopefully so, yep, yep.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, you have yourself a great rest of your night. Don't hang up the call just yet, but for podcast's sake, we're going to cut things off right there. What an absolute legend. Jeff Emig, I could have talked to that guy for six hours, he would have hated me by the end of it, just picking his brain, that guy has so many more stories than we uncovered during this episode, that's why there's going to have to be a round two, version two, part two, he'll have to be a repeat offender here on Moto Albums, thank you guys so much for checking out this episode on iTunes or Spotify, let us know where you listen to it. That'd be awesome. You guys could uh, leave a review. I think you got to listen to a few episodes before you can leave a review. But regardless, that would really help us out. Helps out uh, the algorithm as far as pushing us to the front of uh, like-minded individuals like yourself who absolutely love motocross, especially 90s motocross. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on the next one.